All right. I think, can you hear me? Keep talking. Really? <laughs> okay. Well, how is this now? Okay. Go ahead and teach and she'll turn it up. All right. Sounds good. Great. Hey, it's great to be with you all. So good to be in this place with you and to be looking at this passage as well. Although I have to say, it is challenging. Maybe that's the reason why it's had such a profound impact on my life, on my faith. The last couple of months sitting in it has been rich, disturbing, full of questions, but you'll get all that. As I'm talking, you'll get that impression, I'm sure. <laughs> but because it's so difficult, I really want to back up just a little bit and begin by grounding ourselves in what Chrissy shared with us before Christmas. Thank you, Chrissy, wherever you are. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Chrissy. Yes. The glorious recognition that no matter how deep the sin, how grievous our disobedience, how badly we mess up, the gift of grace given to us in Christ covers every bit. Paul says grace abounds. It overflows. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are ruled by boundless grace. So let's keep this focus as we step through the passage. Don't get bogged down. Stay in grace. Here's Paul's words from Romans 5, 20 to 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I have a niece and nephew, more than one, but these are the two I'm going to tell you about today. Aaron and Matthew, as children, they were best friends. And whenever there was a birthday or Christmas was coming up, I want you to know that they meticulously selected the perfect gift for each other. Then they proceeded to wrap it around and around with paper and fabric and saran wrap and duct tape and you get the picture they would put this gift inside of multiple boxes like a russian doll you know one of those nesting dolls that's what the gift was like and then it was accompanied by this intricate treasure hunt with clues that must be followed exactly if you wanted to find the precious gift. By the time these two were teenagers, the unwrapping and the finding could literally go on for hours. And it was hilarious to watch. We loved to watch their gift giving because we knew that it was all about 
love. Now, God gives us his word in much the same way, drawing us along and slowly giving us understanding. And the struggle itself is an intimate expression of his love and our desire for more of him. It was a struggle for me coming to this chapter with my assumptions. I can't tell you how many times I've had to scrap my interpretation of what Paul means and start over. The passage sounds so simple, right? You guys found this out. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. He uses the same words over and over, right? Mm -hmm. 13 variations on die and death, 10 repetitions of sin, 18 variations on life, and Jesus Christ comes up 18 times if you count all the pronouns, with so many of the same words, you'd think this would be so easy to understand, but it's not. And then there's the verbs, past, present, future, scrambled up, so hard to sort out. And when I read those words, free from sin and thought, I certainly don't feel free from sin. I wish I did. What am I missing? It felt kind of like this perfectionistic teaching, being free from sin. I know I'm justified. I believe. But sin still plagues me. And you know what? We find out later in chapter 7 that he plagues Paul too. So what does he really mean? John Stott and Tim Keller helped me to understand that by sin, Paul means a power, a tyrant, a dictator to which God has delivered mankind. As humans, we're delivered over to sin. We're given to it. Chrissy was also clear about this concept of sin. It's the power that rules us. It rules the world. And there's no way on our own that we can get out from that reign and overcome it. We think we're making these choices about sin, but we can't escape it. I was thinking about sin the same. I wasn't, let me just say, I wasn't thinking about sin the same way as Paul. I was feeling like, oh, this is my choice. I can decide about this. So when he says we're dead to sin, what he really means is as believers, we are no longer under the wrath of God. That's what the language means. We're no longer under his wrath. If you're under the reign of sin, then you are under the wrath of God. And if you're under the reign of God, you're set free from sin. He's not saying that sin doesn't indwell us. He knows that sin attacks and dwells in us all. But we're no longer as helpless as we were before Christ came. Paul seemed to feel that this was an unnecessary chapter for him to write, though, of course, He had no idea that his letter was going to be turned into chapters. 
This passage follows up on the fact that he knows people are going to misunderstand him. And that's why he says in verse three, do you not know? He's dealing with people who didn't really understand chapter five. Here are questions that he addresses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's audience may have had a couple of different kinds of motivations behind the questions that he anticipates. Here briefly are Tim Keller and John Stott's thoughts about Paul's audience. After sharing this amazing good news about justification and God's grace, Paul anticipates the reaction of some of his audience in Rome. He's encountered it elsewhere, so he knows that there are going to be skeptics in the group. There may be those who question the practicality of this kind of complete grace by faith alone through Christ. Imagine with me what some of those skeptics might just say. This is dangerous, Paul. People would take every advantage of such an arrangement. Free grace? My goodness. If God saves us by grace, won't that lead to immoral living? After all, what would cause people to change? What you're saying, Paul, seems to encourage more sin, not less. Sinners could indulge themselves freely in this world without worrying about losing the next. Now, to be fair, This type of thinking that uses the gospel of free grace to excuse sin and lawlessness has a long history in the Christian church. And there's even a term for it, of course. People who argue like this are called antinomian. The word nomos means moral in Greek. So antinomian means anti-moral. Since the people who believe in this way imagine that they can ignore the moral law. Being believers, they can act however they want because they're under grace. In fact, the letter of Jude in the New Testament refers to, refers to false teachers as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Then there's another thought about those folks in Rome. A different, kind of a different nuance, a different opinion. Dick Lucas suggests that Paul was addressing someone who may be closer to many of us. A person who understands that we are living in the time between the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection. This is a person who knows that we still live in Adam's world where all around us sin and death reign. And we are caught up in this, even as believers. We see it, we're surrounded by it, and we experience its impact in our families, our workplace, and in the pride and selfishness of our own hearts. This is the paradox of the unfinished earthly time that we live in. That time in here, I wish I had three hands right now. 
that already but not yet time between Christ's resurrection and our own. Facing this battle of sin and facing the reality of the reign of Christ, we can settle down to a place where we're content with the way things are. I say, God, you know me. You know how difficult it is to change me. You know I fail with sin again and again. I repent. You forgive. Your grace overflows. But you continue on with me. All too easily, we settle down and expect no difference. We live out our story no differently than the world around us. Unsatisfied complacent, all along knowing that there's joy we've missed. And if we are content with that, Paul is not. To return to Paul and his audience, Paul knew exactly what at least some of his audience were thinking. So how then does this gospel of grace produce real change in people's lives? That's the question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul answers, you could say he explodes by no means. So that's a no, Paul, right? How can we who died in sin still live in it? He's really saying, how can we stand to continue living in? In other words, if you really knew God, if you understood the teaching of the gospel, if you know Jesus and his sacrifice for you, you wouldn't ask such a question. So what's the gospel prescription that Paul writes for us in chapter six? What must we do? First, this is so important. First, ears, everybody, recognize what's been done and what is being done on our behalf. So here are verses three and four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is telling us to remember what we know. As your story unfolds, remember Think back on your conversion, that moment when God gave you faith and you first believed that Christ is real, that Christ hung on that cross for my sin. His death, love, and grace for me is real, that moment of faith and conversion. If by God's sacrifice and his power, I am justified. 
then I'm also being made new by his spirit. God who puts us at peace with God is also the God who gives us his Holy Spirit. A person who has been put at peace with God has this new desire to walk in newness of life. And every Christian has that desire. So we must look back at our conversion and baptism. Remember that our baptism first symbolizes this union, union with Christ, his death and resurrection. It symbolizes our death to sin with Christ's death to sin and our coming resurrection like his. I can't have all the benefits of his death without the benefit of his resurrection. I can't say goodbye to my old life without saying welcome to the new life. Every time I look back on my baptism, every time I look back to the tremendous things that are shown and sealed by baptism, I'm reminded that I'm a new woman in Jesus Christ and I should be walking in newness of life. Now, you may be wondering what this is on the board back here. Maybe it has been a distraction for you. We're going to talk about that right now. This is a graphic illustration or representation of a Christian's life. Let me just say, it doesn't show everything. It shows very little, but it shows the points that Paul is talking about in this passage. And it's one way of, of depicting the, the events in time that he's speaking of. He jumps back and forth between past, present, future, right? This is one way of viewing that, helping us with that. So it's a helpful way of talking through what Paul is teaching. Throughout chapter 6, Paul refers to these pivotal events in time. He's talking to his Roman audience, but he's also talking to us because he says over and over again, we, that means you and me. And what we know. So let's take a look at the graphic outline and think about the way that it maps onto your story and onto my story. Here we have Jesus, his death and resurrection, the empty tomb, in case you can't tell with the graphics. Okay. Without him, none of this is possible. He is it, (laughs) right? It's all about him. All right. And this is BC, conveniently. BC, before conversion, before Christ, under God's, symbol for God, God's wrath. My old self, represented by, this is the sign for sin symbol for sin, on the throne, reigning. Okay, this is where I was. And then there's this Mount Everest event, conversion. Look at all of this that's involved here. And all of this is him. 
the Holy Spirit preparing me, getting me ready. God giving me faith, justifying. And here, something that happens oftentimes for people is their baptism occurs fairly close to their conversion. Not always true, but I've placed baptism up here, this symbol for baptism. All right. Conversion. It might come like an explosion for some people. And it also might just come slowly. For many people, it does. But there is this conscious moment when faith and repentance are real for me. And I believe that Christ's death on the cross was for me. Conversion and justification, Jay, conversion and justification, remember chapter five, God's astonishing gift of grace, both happen at the same time. And at work is the Holy Spirit convicting me, right? Beginning this new process of new life, assuring me that God's grace is true. I was one way and now I'm different. Here are Jesus's words to Nicodemus in John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In chapter 13 of his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes how the Holy Spirit works, opening us to God during conversion and as we walk in our new life. Regenerating, convicting, empowering with gifts, reminding our hearts that we are God's children, leading and making us faithful, giving and growing our resurrection life, enabling us to kill sin, interceding with God, guiding us in truth, and transforming us into the image of Christ. He's an amazing workhorse. John Piper tells us, the Lord is always up to about 10,000 things in our lives. All of them good and all way beyond us. And if we're fortunate, we're aware of about three of them. The shaping work of our loving God going on for and in us right now. Think about all he's done. Isn't it astonishing? So for many of us, baptism happens about the same time. And it symbolizes that we're united in Christ's death and his resurrection. So your new life began here, right here. The ups and downs of our already but not yet time. This is a time that's full of God at work in events and people and learning and emotions, all different stories for all hot anger, joy, grief, cancer, pain, and loss, healing, doubting, and triumph, mire, muck, and mountaintop. All the timing, circumstances, and emotions different in each story. And all along, sin tempts me to forget the God who rules my heart. 
temptation to forget what God loves and hates and to go my own way. This little person is walking. This is a good moment. This is a good day. He could just as easily be flat on his belly and crawling. That's where we often are. This time is not easy. It's a challenge. Newness of life involves servanthood and suffering. He's using all of this for his purposes and for the good of mankind. Submitting to him, turning to him, changes history. Looking to Jesus, abiding, bearing fruit, for by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, 8. So we live. And then there is death of our body. Finally, free from sin and alive with Jesus. Verses 5 through 10 look forward to our completed resurrection. Completed resurrection. We don't know the timing on this stuff. We're only in here, but this is stuff we know, right? So, all right. Verses 5 through 10 now. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That happened for Christ. That happens for us. You're following me. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, over there, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. The sin is gone, right? That's where our grace comes from. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God and beyond. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now let's take another little look at this. Verse five, remember, I am united in Christ. As Anthony says, what happens to him happens to me. So baptism speaks to this spiritual dying and rising in union with Christ. Spiritual dying happens first at conversion. And this is the beginning of our resurrection because our our old self is gone. It becomes the beginning of our new self, our new resurrection. That is already active in this life and it's completed 
with the resurrection of our bodies at the end of time. Verses six and seven, our old self, the person we were before we knew Christ was crucified with him at our conversion so that when our earthly body dies, what Paul calls the body of sin, not because the body itself is full of sin, but because we, when we are in the body, we are living in a world of sin. We will win so that when our earthly body dies, what Paul calls the body of sin, we will be completely free of sin. This is something we know, according to Paul. So verse nine, Christ being raised again from the dead, of which baptism is a symbol, will never die again. And when we are raised from the dead, death will have no dominion over us. Then we will be absolutely and completely free. Absolutely and completely free. Now he says, we know these things. We also know that Christ lives today because he has already died and lives in a realm where sin and death do not exist. This from Dick Lucas. Our baptism conversion tells us that not only do we share the power of his death and resurrection now in regeneration, but in that future time, we shall share the power of his death, burial, and resurrection in our own resurrection. Then indeed, we shall be totally free. That's why in verse 11, he can call upon us to consider ourselves like Christ now, dead to sin and alive to God. The old life belongs in the past, and one day it will finally end completely in death and resurrection. New life has already begun. One day it will be gloriously consummated. So given all this, how can we be satisfied? How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see what he means? So verse 12 to 14, they refer directly to the already but not yet time that we're living in now. Very practical here. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. No dominion, no reign. You are, he, you are no longer ruled by sin since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin can't rule us, but it continues to wage this war within and around us. And our battle is to live in Christ with every part of our bodies, drawing on the trust fund of his promises 
turning our back on the prison rule by sin, consciously relying on the weapons of the spirit and faith and scripture and prayer and fellow believers to live in Christ. We are children of God and we can exercise authority over our sinful desires. Paul encourages us to offer ourselves to God. All my instruments, my hands and feet, my strength, my my mouth, my tongue, my gifts, my time, my thoughts, from knowing to action. Living for Christ is about doing. It's positive. It's proactive. Tim Keller says, God's kingdom reigns within us and expresses itself through us as we obey him. Living out gospel grace begins by remembering your identity of freedom in Christ. Christ chose torture and death so that you would be alive and not sin. So live in the freedom won for us by his victory. You belong to God. Sin is not your master. You are not under the law, but under grace. I love this quote from Martin Luther. It's so wonderful. It's the supreme art of the devil, that he can make the law out of the gospel. Once I debate about what I have done and left undone, I'm finished. But if I reply on the basis of the gospel, the forgiveness of sins covers it all. I've won. We are free to fight and win. We are under grace. This is our training ground. Paul writes this to his young companion, Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Titus 2, 11 to 12. So, first, remember. Remember the faith you've been given. Remember who you are, a daughter of God who sets you free and rules your true self. Keller challenges us to live like it. Remember, you're not an orphan. Revel in his love. Sing, rejoice, praise him. Remember that Jesus died for you, that the rule of sin and guilt is dead. This is reality. So hold fast to that. Remember, you are in Christ when you rise in the morning, when you lay down for sleep at night, and when you begin to fret in the watches of the night. Remember, when you watch the birds play in the meadows and the trees, and the morning sunlight glance along the humps of the hills, and when blizzards roll across the countryside, Remember as Jesus did, the little, the least, the lonely, and the lost. Stand for the king. When you fall to temptation, ask for forgiveness, grace, freely given. And when suffering overcomes your heart, fall to your knees, cry out for him, and know that he stands with you. He suffered for you. Be alert and remember when the enemy strikes, and he will, 
shred his lies with sharp gospel truth. Shout Hosanna. Study and remember his word so that it echoes through every fiber of your soul, remaking every nerve, bone, and muscle of your body. Remember Jehovah, your maker, and Christ, your redeemer. Remember the Holy Spirit who lives in you. He is guiding, comforting, encouraging, reminding. Listen, amplify his voice. And remember, you are united with Christ. And one day, his resurrection life will be fully and completely yours forever. Pray that God will use you throughout your story. Ask him for help. Pray that he will create in you a heart that is satisfied by his goodness, joyfully willing to live justly, generously, and walk humbly with him. The tape is gone. The last bit of paper is pulled back and the final box is opened. And inside, we discover the greatest gift of all waiting. Paul says, see, What have I been telling you? We all nod our heads and say, yes, Paul, we know. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. So, Paul says, go, consider, ponder, meditate on Christ Jesus. Remember what he's already done. Live in him now. Christ is your faithful resurrection hope. He is your story. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for filling our empty hands and our messy hearts with the greatest gift of all, yourself. Change us. Make us women who walk at the pace of grace through heartache and gladness. Give us hearts that long to know you above all things. May we rejoice in the sure knowledge that you are coming again to finish the work you've begun in us. What an Easter day that will be. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.